one thing I like to uh, do from an education standpoint is talk to clients and investors about how important land value is when they're making the uh, decisions on you know depreciation so land can't be depreciated and we've got to remove it from that purchase equation we touched on this briefly at the beginning of the call the current guidance from the irs is that you pull your tax records and go with what the county has to say the irs considers the you know real estate investors to be a little unsophisticated in that arena i disagree with that i think they're some of the most intelligent particularly when it comes to valuations in their own market areas so don't hesitate to drill down on that. You certainly don't want to just throw like a blanket 80-20 at it. 80% improvements, 20% land. Check the county tax record first. Maybe the county says it's 10% and you've just saved yourself an incredible amount of money because the lower the land value, the higher the improvement basis and it's the improvement basis that gets segregated. Hey guys, welcome back to the Fort Podcast. My name is Chris Powers and I want to thank you for joining me today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. And if you've enjoyed this show, I would be super grateful if you would follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you listen to. And if on Apple, it would mean a lot if you'd leave a rating and review. Last but not least, you can find all these episodes on YouTube, Thank you so much again for joining me and enjoy the show. This episode is brought to you by Fort Capital. Are you a commercial real estate investment broker or anyone out there with an off-market class B industrial deal between 15 and $100 million? Fort Capital offers industry-leading incentives, including a bonus, the ability to co-invest, and exclusive partner trips for those that close deals with us. Join Fort Capital's deal incentive program today to be eligible for these incentives and more by going to www.fortcapitallp.com backslash connect. All right, we're back. Wes, thanks for joining me today. How's it going, Chris? It's going great. I haven't been on the mic for about three weeks. And, and for those listening, Wes is generous. This is our second time to record this, so we've gotten extra good, and today we're going to deliver a great episode. So thanks again for joining me, Wes. Hey, I'm glad to be here, man. I, uh, I'm stoked, even though this is a re-record. Um, I know it's not going to be anywhere as explosive as uh, this one I was listening to the other day where the guy came out of the gate talking about riding his bike across town and getting his girlfriend pregnant. <laughs> that one was wild. Was that Remember, on- You know what I'm talking about? Was that on my podcast? Yes, it was. Uh, so the guy's thing was like, he rebuilt kind of smaller cities. Oh. I wish I could remember his name. Yeah, John Marsh. That's it. And yeah. uh, <laughs> I mean, five minutes into that, I was hooked. That guy's a riot. So let yeah. me lower the expectation for this episode. It's not going to be anywhere near as his his one-liners one. are, are legendary you you can't uh you can't plant potatoes and expect apples or something like that something about a wheelbarrow that he threw out and i'm pretty <laughs> good on my colloquialisms but that guy was amazing uh and i also listened to Fertig's uh yeah a couple days ago richards has done really well um he is short-term uh rentals are else. interesting they are and they depreciate well too. They do. Maybe we'll talk about it today. 
All right. Wes is uh, the king of cost segregation and everything that goes around uh, that industry and that uh, business practice. We've been fortunate to work on several deals with Wes. That's how we met. I think we met off actually off of Twitter, but uh, we've been fortunate to work with Wes over the last couple of years on, on several of our properties. And so today we're just going to spend a lot of time talking about cost segregation um, and why it's beneficial and why it's one of the kind of key pillars of the real estate industry and kind of the secret to why a lot of people in real estate don't pay a lot of taxes. So let's just kind of start the, the, the 101 question is, what is a cost segregation study? So a cost segregation study is a tax deferment strategy, and it front loads or brings to the early years of ownership your depreciation expense, and it helps offset uh, tax payments and also free up tax flow. And this involves uh, an analysis of building components and reorganization of those components into various recovery periods. Some of those recovery periods, uh, some of those periods can be recovered in the early years of ownership. Some, you just have to kind of stretch them out. How's it different from just typical straight line depreciation? Typical straight line depreciation would be kind of, we'll call it the slow play. Uh, so you've got your industrial buildings, those depreciate over 39 years. If you bought a $39 million facility, you'd knock off a million bucks a year. So you, the loss that you take every year, the uh, loss through the non-cash expense that is depreciation would be a million bucks. And you can take that every year, one piece at a time through the life of the asset. What cost segregation would do would take about 20% of that 39 million. So, you know, 7 million or so and put that in the year one loss bucket. So you're paying effectively no tax on income, assuming your you know, income is below 7 million um, in the early years. So straight line is, is a slow play, takes a while, 27 and a half years for apartments or, or uh, residential facilities, 39 year for non-residential. Uh, and then cost segregation is a more aggressive uh, form of write-off. It takes a big chunk of your improvement basis and gets it off the books in the initial years of ownership. When you hear that, there, it, it's like, okay, why wouldn't you do this? And so that's the question. What would be a, an instance where it wouldn't be, there wouldn't be a good reason to do one? Is it because you're not going to hold the property very long? Are there any variables of why someone that owns real estate shouldn't do one of these? Hold period is a is a big consideration. If okay. you're just going to flip it, there's no point because recapture tax is is an important thing that's often misunderstood. And I'm I'm happy to um, walk down that trail with you and, and talk a lot more about that. Um, but that's one instance where you would say, all right, you know, if my hold period is going to be a year, what's the point? I don't need to do cost segregation. I'm just going to buy it. Uh, you know, reposition it in the market or market to market and, and then get rid of it. And cost of the study used to be a big consideration, you know, 20 years ago, maybe 25 years ago, it was really big for firms and not many other folks doing this stuff. And so 20, 30 grand for a study um, is a, you know, a big pill to swallow, especially if your improvement basis is sub a million bucks. 
But now that we have so many more players in the game, the price points probably be between three and six now on a lot of commercial properties, lower for you know single family stuff. Um, that's not really a don't a, a go no go there. That's it's going to pay back, especially because of the bonus depreciation regs that were ushered in in late 2017. So it makes a lot of sense financially. Um, it pencils well, so to speak. Uh, it's a bit of an arbitrage play, depending on what your tax bracket is uh, and how much you're saving. Um, but for most investors that are going to hang on to a piece of property, cost saves the way to go. And and just to piggyback off that, is it really something that uh, you need to hire a professional to do, or is it something that you can do on your own? Yes and yes. Uh, so I would give you two scenarios there. If it's just me, uh, let's assume I don't know about co- a lot about <laughs> cost seg. If it's just me and I've got a rent house or two, um, y- you can read up on the principles of cost segregation, dig around, uh, find some you know, how much things cost in the current market, learn about how to separate those on your own. It's it's not that challenging uh, on smaller properties. You can do it yourself. There's also software out there that'll help you. Uh, but if you've got a commercial play and, and you're a fiduciary for for others folks' money, um, you, you want to get a pro in there to, to knock that out for you. Can it only be done on investment properties or can it be done on your personal residence? Can't do your house can't be living in it. Um, you don't depreciate that anyway. Uh, you can take some other losses with your, uh, you know, mortgage payments and taxes and stuff like that. Uh, but it's not something that's capitalized. Uh, capitalized is just another word for setting it up for depreciation. Okay. And I'm assuming this follows the federal tax code. So are the rules pretty much the same from state to state or do they vary depending on which state that you're do- conducting the study in? Cost segregation relates back to federal taxes. There are some states that follow what the Fed does. It's not many. Uh, More states than not have opted out of bonus depreciation and and things like that. So that varies. I I would encourage anyone that, um, you know, has a concern with that to uh, touch base with their tax professional on that. Uh, What I do applies to federal tax payments as it relates to state and local taxes, you you need some specific knowledge in that arena. Okay. I buy a property and I want to get a study done and I call you. Uh, What actually happens from the day that I call you and say I need one to the day that you deliver me my final product? And then the follow-up question to that is what do I do once you've given me the study? All right, sure. So. you reach out. I take some basic information from you being, uh, when did you buy it? How much did you pay for it? And what's the street address? And then we will go in there and, uh, do a quick analysis, a preliminary analysis, if you will. And we will check out, uh, the big thing right off the bat is we're going to have to knock land out of the purchase equation. Land's non-depreciable. So, um, my staff will go and pull your tax records to see what the county has to say about land. Uh, and we'll remove that from your purchase price. That'll leave us with an improvement basis. And then we'll kind of take a look at properties that we've done in the past and see how yours sizes up to that. 
And we'll say, all right, well, this is about the same. We've done plenty of industrial. We know kind of where this is going to fall. We'll do a little online research, check it out on Google Earth, see what we're working with. Uh, and we'll send you a proposal that says, hey, Chris, you know, we're forecasting a loss of, you know, a million bucks here. And at a top margin tax rate of 37%, this will save you 370K on your taxes. Here's our fee. Sign the engagement letter and we'll move forward. And so we get the engagement letter back and we go to the client and we schedule a time to actually come out and, and visit the property. You'll it's likely you'll see me out there. Um, I have a, a guy I work with, my uh, managing director, Chris, also does site visits for me, but we don't really outsource stuff. Um, we're not into that. There's some firms that do that. Um, we're not one of them. Uh, I, I travel quite a bit. I go out, visit the property. I'll take notes. I'll take measurements, a lot of pictures, and uh, we'll send it to staff. They'll do some data entry on it uh, with my guidance, and then we'll have a deliverable. Usually the deliverable is a little bit better than, than the proposal, uh, under promise over deliver. And uh, you'll take that deliverable, put it in front of your tax professional, and they'll basically set up your depreciation schedule for you using that data, uh, assuming you bought in the current tax year. And they'll, there'll be a big bucket of costs for five-year assets that are a year one write-off under the current bonus regs will be a, a smaller bucket of cost for seven-year assets. Again, 100% write-off in year one. And then 15 years, the other big bucket of cost. We could talk more about what those represent. Um, but that's basically the data sets that we're going to give you. Um, a value for five, seven, 15-year, and 39-year assets. And uh, turn that over to your tax professional. They set up your depreciation schedule. And you're going to take a big loss in year one. That loss can be distributed to investment partners through K-1s. And uh, well, that's if you have partners or you can enjoy all that depreciation itself. Okay, let's talk about that. What falls into 5, 7, 15, and, and 39? Um, and to be clear, uh, part of this process is somebody goes on site and is actually looking at the features of the buildings uh, to understand what falls in there. Okay. What, what are some things that fall into those categories? Sure. So five-year assets are inside the building. They're assets that are uh, going to be reclassed to uh, 1245 assets is what it's technically called in uh, the IRS world there. Personal property assets. And those are going to be certain types of flooring, uh, wood, plank. We've got carpet, vinyl. Ceramic flooring doesn't count because you can't take it out. Uh, window covering, cabinets, sinks, appliances are a big one if you're in the multifamily game. And then all of the ancillary plumbing and electrical necessary to service those appliances, shelving, decorative millwork, um, things of that nature. The theory is if you can remove it and reuse it, it can be considered a five-year asset if it's inside the building. So not so much the doors and the drywall and the stud framing, that's all structural items. Uh, but other things, uh, furniture can be another one. If you buy a property that's loaded down with furniture, it's easy to just pop that out and consider it personal property. So your five-year bucket of costs are inside the building. Seven years, kind of a tweener category. 
It's never much in any asset class, mailboxes, picnic tables, certain types of lighting outside the building. Uh, but 15 years, the other big one. That's land improvements. So we're outside the building now. It's your parking lot, your paving, your sidewalk, your signage outside the building, site lighting, uh, storm drainage is another one that can be incredibly valuable to an investor uh, to, to be able to pick that up and move it into a 15-year schedule. Fencing, another big component. I know you got a lot of that around your uh, your industrial yards. And uh, landscaping, landscaping and irrigation is another big one. So there's your 5, 7, and 15. The remaining bucket of cost is 39-year if you're in the commercial space, 27 and a half year if you're in residential. And this is best interpreted as the structure of the building, the stuff that you have to have to have a building. Doors, walls, siding, framing, roofing, slab, those type of components. You can't accelerate depreciation on those, but you can still depreciate them. So uh, we will value those assets as well. This just came to mind. So let's just say I buy an industrial building. Imagine that. Imagine that. Let's just say I, I do what I do. And I'm using a really extreme example, but let's say I buy a a hundred thousand square foot building for ten thousand dollars, so cheap, a dollar a foot, or ten dollars a foot. I don't even know. No, ten cents a foot. Sorry, ten, ten cents, cents yeah. a foot. Jeez, bargain shopper, man. I mean, come on. And and clearly the replacement cost would be, let's call it. I buy it for ten thousand, but the replacement cost is ten million. How do you do you depreciate based on the cost basis in the building? So like if the roof would would if I was to go replace the roof, it would really cost a million dollars. But in theory, I bought a thousand dollar roof, maybe one tenth of the building or two. How does that all work? Do you base it on the ten thousand dollar price of the depreciation or do you base it off uh, what the actual replacement cost would be today? Does that make sense? It does make sense. Uh, it's it's a good question. We get it a lot because most often it works the other way. Uh, investors are paying way more than what the property can be replaced for because, as you know, you're buying an income stream, um, not so much sticks and drywall and, and a slab. So here's how it works. We're going to estimate the building components and we're going to say, all right, at this current market price, here's what this component is worth. However, it's got some effective age on it. So your roof is likely pretty old. It's got some years on it. So we'll cut off you know, 40%, 60% of the price of a new roof so that we come up with a effective age, a value that represents something that has been exposed to wear and tear. And then that value is going to represent a small percentage of the whole. Um, let's use some round numbers here, for example. Let's say our five-year bucket of cost is 20%. Uh, our 15-year bucket of cost is another 20%. And then our 39-year bucket of cost is going to be the remaining 60%. So we would apply those percentages to what you pay. So now in your $10,000 example, your five-year bucket of cost is worth two G's. Same for the 15-year bucket. And then the structural bucket is going to be worth 6K, but that's divided up into several other smaller components. So what we're doing 
is a it's called a purchase price allocation. It's a little different from the purchase price allocation that you may be familiar with when you go in and acquire a property and some goodwill and some equipment. Same word, different app, application there. So we'll allocate our percentages that we come up with, our estimate of value of the entire structure, broken out into different buckets, uh, recovery periods, if you will. And then we'll apply those percentages to what you pay for. Okay. Are there any um, materials or components of the building that, let's say, fall into a gray area where some people might say, well, this should go in the five-year, and maybe some people say, no, I think it should go into the seven, or is it all pretty black and white? It's tons of gray area. A lot of it falls into the um, distribution of utilities throughout the facility. Um, you know, you've got a, a wire that's going to your refrigerator and then, oh, this is kind of older construction, newer construction, all that stuff's dedicated. Um, but in the electrical system, some of it is servicing personal property. Some of it is just servicing the regular light over your head, which is a structural component. Uh, some of it may be servicing like the nice pendant lightings over the entry counter, which is considered decorative. And so you can separate that electrical system based on what it's being used for. A kitchen in a restaurant is a phenomenal example. You've got to put in, and just say, a, a whole other 200 amp panel to run a kitchen. But all of that is unique to that distributive trade or practice that's going on inside a building. So there's some gray area there when you've got to break out electricity. Uh, water distribution is another one under the same theory and same set of components. Uh, Millwork can get gray. Um, there's a theory that an asset that uh, takes the life of what it's protecting. So let's take a bollard, for example, those concrete pipes out in the driveway or parking area. If it's protecting the keypad that you use to enter in your code to open the gate, it can be a 15-year asset. If it's placed right on the corner of the building and it's keeping your uh, building from getting hit by trucks and stuff, it takes uh, a 39. So there's some more gray area there. Like, where is this thing? What is it actually doing? How is it actually functioning? What's the use? Then we tr start to make some determinations on uh, the proper asset class. Let's just, I, I, I think we've kind of set the tone. So this, this answer isn't uh, rocket science. You know, when we're really thinking about, okay, there's these buckets, the, obviously the more five-year things that fit into a five-year bucket, the more depreciation an asset's going to get, uh, which is why maybe industrial, which has, you know, it's a big box with small office and a warehouse, might not do as well as a multifamily project with tons of appliances and furniture and common areas and just lots of stuff. So I may have just kind of teed up the answer to the question, but when we think of apartments and retail, what are some of the properties that do that that receive much more benefit from a cost seg and which are the ones that might get less? And then I have a follow-up to that. You're seeing it well. Ones that are asset intensive. Well, let's throw this one out there. There's a carve out for car washes right now. You can write the whole damn thing off in year one. It's all considered. <laughs> Is that why everybody's gas. getting into car washes? I have seen the wildest prices for car washes lately. Uh, but I mean, I don't, I prefer to tell people, you know, not to let the uh, tax tail wag the dog or however it goes. 
but yeah, man, those things are year one. See you later. Back out the land value. And there you go. There's your write off. So aside from that, aside from properties with special considerations, um, you're seeing it correctly. The more asset intensive it is on the inside, the more build out there is, the more uniquely the property is situated to um, service a particular trade, the more write-offs there will be inside the building. So let's walk that through. You nailed it with apartments. Those will push like 30% to, or more on the uh, five-year bucket of costs. Assisted living communities are another one because they kind of are like an apartment, but they also have a kitchen element to them, uh, a medical element to them. Some of them even have a little beauty shop in there. So they're fairly asset intensive. Um, other ones would include climate controlled self-storage, particularly if they're metal builds. All that air conditioning costs a ton of money. Um, you can accelerate that. Um, what, are, what am I forgetting here? Oh, medical office. I mean, those things are so expensive to build, you know, three, 400 bucks a foot. Uh, and it's a lot of additional plumbing and electrical and cabinetry and lighting. It has to go into that building for it to do what it does. Therefore, we'll see large accumulations of assets in the five-year buckets of cost. Uh, you mentioned apartments. Um, Single-tenant retail, if it's restaurant. Um, if it's, you know, just regular, like an H&R block or a Hallmark gift shop, it's, there's probably not a lot in there. Uh, but if it's restaurant, man, there's just a ton of stuff we can go in and accelerate. And then on the lower end of the scale, assets that will have less value. Um, perfect example is your industrial facilities. You walk in, there's a small office building. You go out into the warehouse, you look left, you look right, you see the whole damn thing. There's just nothing there. There may be some opportunity if they're welding or using overhead cranes. Um, but generally speaking, industrial is kind of on the lower end of the scale. And when we talk about the scale, the scale is percent of assets that can be reclassed to a short run. However, they kind of make up for it on the outside because you got a big yard for trucks, usually nice fencing, well lit. Um, so there's there's going to be stuff in there. Uh, oh, sorry, outside the building that you can take advantage of as well. When you're doing improve, when you buy a property and you're going to do improvements to the property, and it checks all the other boxes, you know we're going to hold this thing for a while. Do you typically want to do the study before you do all your improvements or after? And does it matter depending on what type of asset you're buying? What matters is whether or not the property is in service when you buy it. So in service is generally means it's like generating rents. So two schools of thought here. If you buy something that's already in service, let's just say it's an apartment complex, and you're going to go through the process of kind of turning over units as tenants move out, I recommend my clients do the cost seg study at acquisition. So we have a good feel of what you bought. And as you go through the process of rehabbing units, you can take disposition on stuff that you throw out and we can add two additional capital expenditures later as you go through the improvement process. If you bought a vacant warehouse that wasn't occupied, that wasn't gener generating any rent, um, this property wouldn't be in service yet when you close. You're gonna do some CapEx on it. 
uh, put some money into the building and then market it and get a tenant in there and start receiving rents, placing service. So if you're buying something that's vacant and it's not ready to go, wait, do your CapEx. We'll look at two things. We'll look at what you bought. We'll look at what you spent. It's likely those will be lumped together into one cost. Uh, again, this is a situation where the property is not in service when you acquire, uh, and we'll use that one cost to segregate. So it does matter, um, but the most important thing isn't so much what you're buying, it's whether or not what you're buying is ready to be depreciated. Recapture tax. We talked about it at the beginning. What is it? And then, yeah, we'll let's start there. What is it? Another way of interpreting cost seg is that it's kind of like an interest-free loan. You're going to get taxed on sale. You're going to pay it back. Um, the thing with recapture is that it's paid back at different rates. There's three kinds of recapture tax. There's a section 1245 recapture tax, which is a tax at your ordinary income rate. And that will be assessed to assets that were reclassified into the five-year and seven-year bucket of cost. We called them personal property assets earlier. Uh, so those you're going to, you know, take that year one right off at your ordinary income tax rate. And then you'll pay it back when you sell at your income tax rate at the time of sale. Usually it's the same rate. Uh, sometimes that varies. Then there's what's called section 1250 recapture. Those are the 15-year assets. So that one's kind of on a sliding scale. Um, it's going to be taxed at what you took in excess of straight line depreciation. So the good example here is if you have $15,000 worth of 15-year assets, right, and you take 100% bonus depreciation, you take them all in year one, then you've taken all of that uh, in excess of straight line versus taking it a thousand bucks a year, 15 years, thousand bucks a year, one at a time. So the portion that you take in excess of straight line will be taxed at the ordinary rate, the rest capital gains. The last type is the most common uh, one that people are familiar with. And that's section 12, I'm recaptured 1250 gain. That's going to be taxed at a maximum of 25%. That's the one, whether or not you do cost seg, you're going to pay that one. Uh, actually, whether or not you did depreciation, because you're going to be, you're going to take that recapture tax on the depreciation you took or the depreciation you should have taken. Um, so take it. <laughs> Don't ever not take it. Uh, section 1245 recapture, that's at the ordinary rate. Section 1250 recapture, that one's on the sliding scale, a little bit on the ordinary rate, a little bit on the um, you know 25% cap gain, and then unrecaptured 1250 gain. It creates a bit of an arbitrage when you look at the opportunity. Um, there's the savings in the initial year. The payback could be years down the line or just a couple years down the line. It's what you do with the money in the interim that makes cost seg worth it. It frees up cash flow uh, into a, a commercial real estate investor. That's, you know, do I jump into another deal? Do I have free cash flow to distribute to partners? Uh, do I take that free cash flow and do all my CapEx? Depends on what you do with the money. 
Uh, obviously, inflation's a big consideration right now. So not taking uh, the upper, the initial year deductions gets kind of eaten into with with uh, inflationary considerations as well. So recapture tax, you got three kinds. Um, it's important to understand them. It's not going to kill your deal, um, but it'll definitely uh, pencil a little differently if you don't give it its due consideration going in. Okay, wait, expand on the uh, how this correlates to inflation. So um, if you had some depreciation sitting in your property right now and you don't take that off the table as cash and start using it to start generating some return on that, inflation is going to devalue the dollars that you have tucked in there that you could otherwise be using if they were freed up through some type of um, depreciation expense. I got Makes you. Sense? Makes sense. All right. This was a Twitter question. What do owners that are long-term holders do once their depreciable depreciable amortization schedule expires? For example, owner plans to hold forever. Cost seg depreciation schedule is for 10 years. Do they just pay the tax on the income beyond year 10 or is there an alternative strategy? You can run out of depreciation. I think that's the, the heart of the question there is. Uh, what do I do when my depreciation is gone? And so what you're doing when you depreciate a building is, is every year you're going to have a different adjusted basis is what it's called, right? You got your, you know, million dollar property and you, you, you take a little bit of depreciation expense off every year and eventually you'll run out if you hold forever. 27 and a half years is the maximum amount of time you can depreciate a residential facility. 39 years for other non-residential, other commercial properties, take your pick. Uh, but yeah, you can run out. It can all be gone and uh, there's really nothing you can do about it. Uh, if you do some CapEx during your hold, that can create an opportunity for more depreciation. Uh, but otherwise, I mean, it can, it can all go away. And if you accelerate it, in theory, Cost seg is accelerating depreciation. It will go away quicker, but it also frees up cash. So two, two parts to that. Is there any ongoing legislation or just anything that people should know about that's not uh, widely obvious? Currently, no. Uh, there was a little scuzzlebutt earlier in the year about 1031s going away, uh, bonus depreciation going away. Currently, all quiet on that front. Um, I am a, a member of a cost segregation society. We have a, a lobbyist who keeps their um, ear to the ground on stuff like this. So, no major changes in the cost seg arena, except to note that bonus depreciation will begin to phase out at the end of this year. We're sitting in 2022, starting in the uh, January 1, 2023 it will no longer be 100%. It will be 80% of the short life assets are eligible for year one write-off. And then that's going to step down 20% a year until it's phased out. If the economy's in the shitter, I wouldn't be surprised <laughs> if they re-upped it because yeah. uh, the government has understood well for a long time how many jobs are tied up in construction and real estate. And 
tax incentives are a good way to keep that ball rolling, to incentivize people to build. Uh, I mean, really, it Im- impacts everyone from the lawyer doing your title work to the guy, you know, swinging hammer on your capex. So I wouldn't be surprised if it got some life pumped back into it. Uh, but nothing on the front right now that's going to um, impact it in any major way. All right. I think we've kind of covered cost segs. I mean, um, is there anything that I didn't ask that was obvious that people should know besides the fact that they should, uh, as soon as they're done listening, pick up the phone and call you and, and get on your calendar? <laughs> Stop that. Uh, <laughs> you know, one thing I like to uh, do from an education standpoint is talk to clients and investors about how important land value is when they're making the uh, decisions on, you know, depreciation. So land can't be depreciated and we've got to remove it from that purchase equation. We touched on this briefly at the beginning of the call. The current guidance from the IRS is that you pull your tax records and go with what the county has to say. The IRS considers the, you know, real estate investors to be a little unsophisticated in that arena. I disagree with that. I think they're some of the most intelligent, particularly when it comes to valuations in their own market areas. So don't hesitate to drill down on that. You certainly don't want to just throw like a blanket 80-20 at it, 80% improvements, 20% land. Check the county tax record first. Maybe the county says it's 10% and you've just saved yourself an incredible amount of money because the lower the land value, the higher the improvement basis, and it's the improvement basis that gets segregated. So let's say the county's high. They're wrong. They mass appraise all the time. They run algorithms. And as you know, you go from one side of the street to the other, even in the same zip code, and the land values can be wildly different. So then what do you do? Um, I've had several clients hire, well, first check your appraisal. Sometimes they'll call it out separately. it's not standard practice, but sometimes there will be a land only valuation in there. We can reference that number as well. It's substantiated and defensible. Uh, but if there's not one, you can hire an appraiser to go out there, explain your situation to them, tell them you've got this high land value from the county. It's killing you on how much depreciation opportunity you have. Uh, and let them take a look and pull some comps and see if they can get that value down to something more representative of actual current market conditions. Um, You can also get a BPO, broker's price opinion, that carries some weight. The trick here is to make sure the land value that you elect is fair and defensible. In the unlikely event of an audit, it's gonna be the first thing they look at. So I don't like it um, when we see these crazy high land valuations and, and there's really no justification for it. Coastal clients, sorry, you know what you're getting into. Right? If you buy something in Malibu, the land's just nuts. You know, it's same thing for you know New York. Uh, but you know, mid mid market America, uh, you know, you re- if it's anything over twenty percent, look hard at that number because it's going to make a big impact on how much of that property you can depreciate. So that's the biggest thing I think maybe that we didn't touch on um, was just land valuation. Careful consideration to that uh, is always warranted. You can really save yourself a ton of money if you, if you go in and make sure you nail that number uh, and even lean it towards your favor if it's justifiable. Okay. Maybe one follow-up to that then. I'm going to try and ask this the right way. 
you mentioned like Malibu where it's all in the land pretty much. But let's just say doesn't matter where you are. Is everything predicated on the year that the study's done? So what I mean by that is let's say you buy a $10 million property and at the time you bought it, it was, let's just use the 80-20 rule for simplicity. It was 2 million land, 8 million improvements. But by year nine or even year seven, the, the area's boomed and now the land is basically worth 10 million. Like the land price has just shot up. How does land price movement during the life of owning it, if at all, impact the cost seg that was done in year one, or is there no impact? No impact. We're analyzing what you bought at a specific date and time. Yeah, so that land can move around. I mean, good for you because it's a hell of a lot of appreciation going on there. Uh, land's capturing a lot of value in that scenario, but cost segregation and asset depreciation is a snapshot of a moment in time. It's what you bought and when you bought it. Okay, one more question while we're on that thread. I buy an office building. God bless office in certain places. But let's say I bought it, you know, six, seven years ago. I did my cost seg. And then the pandemic hit, and I'm in a market that office isn't doing so hot, and I want to convert it to residential. And so I do that. Can I do another cost seg again once I've converted the use, like made it into a totally different use case and obviously done a lot of CapEx work or is it a one-time deal? Yeah, no, if you if you do CapEx and you're converting use, absolutely, man, because you're going to spend millions on converting an office to residential. I've seen a few. And that additional capital outlay is something that can be set up for depreciation because you're capitalizing it. You can segregate it. You can break it out into the different bucket of costs, all those cabinets that you're putting in for, uh, you know, apartment tenants that wouldn't otherwise be there for your office tenants are going to be reclassified. All those toilets need to go somewhere on the depreciation schedule. So heck yeah, man, if you do a big CapEx in any given tax year, uh, go for it, get, that cost sake study done so that you can maximize the depreciation on that additional expenditure. Another um, thing that makes me think about is qualified improvement property regulations. Um, so apartment guys, close your ears, doesn't apply to you. All you <clears throat> guys out there with commercial properties that are non-residential in nature, um, there's a, a carve out right now called quick regs, qualified improvement property regs. And it allows you to reclassify structure that's inside the shell of the building from what would generally be 39 year to 15 year. And because that 15 year is under 20 years, 20 years is the cutoff for bonus depreciation, the year one write-off opportunity there is enormous. We saw this in um, your facility on university. I don't want to throw out the tenant name or anything, but um, you benefited greatly from this regulation because of that TI expense on, on that building. We were able to re things that would otherwise be structured, like the doors, the drywall, um, fire suppression system, interior lighting, basic interior lighting. Because it's inside the envelope of the building, because these quick regs are in place, qualified improvement property regs, 
we reclassed it to 15 year and took bonus on the whole thing. So massive windfall if you're doing um, CapEx inside a building. If you're expanding the building, different situation, you need to be inside the envelope that you bought. Um, but that's another thing that uh, I hope your listeners are aware of. Uh, and if they're not, do, do a quick read up on that. It may help them out quite a bit. I think we nailed it. Home run out of the ballpark, man. I, this was fun. I, I enjoyed uh, sitting down and chatting with you. It's always a good time to uh, see what you're up to. I'm yeah. digging the vacation beard all the way. <laughs> you got your uh, one-week beach glow. Hey, I'm going to do a charity auction. Um, and I'll, <clears throat> if you don't mind, I'll probably app the podcast. It's I'm going to auction off some pickles because I just finished jarring uh, my first batch of pickles for the year and uh <laughs> i'm gonna auction them off and, and raise some money for the galveston bay foundation and hopefully that gets a little bit of traction you're the man i try you do whatever you want to do with the podcast <laughs> cool hey everyone it's chris here again thank you so much for joining me on this journey if you enjoyed the show please follow the show on apple spotify or subscribe on youtube thanks again and i'll see you on the next episode Chris Powers is the founder and chairman of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.